You are a Mandalorian. Your ancestors rode the great Mythosaur. The songs of eons past foretold of the Mythosaur rising up to herald a new age of Mandalore. Sadly, it only exists in legends. Bucket of heads, Mavar Tigar. Welcome to the 195th marvelous Mythosaur myth busting episode of Mandavision, Nargai Tom. And thank you so much for checking out this small independent Star Wars podcast. We're so glad you're here with us. Welcome back, welcome aboard. Whatever it is, we're glad you're here. Remember, the best way to reach out to us is, of course, on social media. We are at Mando underscore Vision on Twitter and Instagram. You can email the show, MandovisionTom at gmail.com. Please be sure to like, subscribe, follow, and share the show. With all the Mandalorians in your covert. Well, we are a day late, but hopefully not a dollar short, because we have a massive, massive, massive episode of The Mandalorian to discuss today. And, oh gosh, where do I even start? Um, this episode has it all, right? This is, this is what we've been waiting for, what's been teased for a little while now. The return to Mandalore for Din Djarin, for Grogu. You know, we saw... Maybe we didn't know at the time, but we saw a lot of images from this episode in the, the teaser trailer footage uh, for the show leading up to up to now. And ooh, I, I, I it to say this episode, I think game changer is is the word that applies here because this really is going to flip the script on a lot of things, a lot of elements that have sort of been teased over the last couple of years on this show, on the episodes featuring Din in the Book of Bubba Fett. Uh, a, a lot of things are coming to a head here, and I, I, I think it's important to note because uh, I have been, <laughs> I've not been like the biggest Bo supporter, uh, Bo Katan supporter uh, in the, the in the in the Mandalorian run, um, but this episode might have a little subtitle of, of you know make Bo Katan great again because this is the episode where her beliefs get challenged in a way that I don't think she ever expected to be. And the sort of true believerness of Din Djarin is 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 providing her with a lot of a lot of things to think on now. Um, we're gonna get into the episode proper. We're also gonna talk about this week's episode of Star Wars The Bad Batch, uh, which was a a really just uh, intense character driven episode featuring Crosshair as as our centerpiece. 
uh, and, and and sort of like the breaking of Crosshair in, in, in many, many ways. Um, and we will dive into that in the second part of the show. Um, let's go ahead and get the particulars out for this week's episode of The Mandalorian, okay? This is The Mandalorian Season 3, Episode 2, The Minds of Mandalore. Our original air date was yesterday, March 8th, 2023. This episode written by John Favreau and directed really, really well by Rachel Morrison. Great job on that. Our plot this week. Mando and Grogu explore the ruins of a destroyed planet. Bit of an understatement, but uh, yeah, we're, we're there. Our, our cast this week. As the Mandalorian, we have Pedro Pascal, Brendan Wayne, and Latif Crowder. Also joined by Katie Sackhoff as Bo-Katan. And Amy Sedaris returning as Pelimoto. And then after that, it is a, it is a gaggle of, of, of people in uh, practical effect costumes and some CGI creatures. And and it's 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 just a wonderfully visually dense episode of the show. Uh, some people were, were complaining online about uh, the lighting. And I think you need to check your TV good person because I think it was supposed to be dark and but it wasn't too dark that it, you couldn't see anything so check your settings friends out there if you thought it was a little bit of a dark episode and you couldn't see what was going on because I could see just fine and what I saw blew the mind blew the mind all right let's get into the episode proper you know what that means it is time strap on your buckets let's go <laughs> Come on now, don't be a coward. You're an astromech. Act like one. I wouldn't rely too much on this one. Its circuitry is a little fragile. I thought you said it was built for adventure. Yeah, so you heard it right there, the return of Pelimoto. Once again, our good friend Din Djarin checking on his favorite mechanic on Tatooine, this time on the eve of the, of the Boonta Eve classic. Uh, another throwback to the prequel era, episode one in particular. The Boonta Eve, of course, being the pod race that Anakin Skywalker won to aid Qui-Gon Jinn and, and Padme Amidala in their attempt to get to Coruscant to evade uh, the Phantom Menace on the planet of Naboo. I don't know if I need, I don't know why I'm regurgitating the plot of Episode One to you. You know it, but uh, again, another a wink and a nod to a prequel era staple, uh, and we see sort of what what Mos Espa's like on the eve of Boonta Eve, right? On Boonta Eve, I guess it's just called Boonta Eve, right? The eve of Boonta Eve. That's they'd be like the day before, I guess. I don't. <laughs> Any hoot, but we see a little bit of what kind of shenanigans occur in the town and you gotta remember like this is this is also Boba Fett's town now and Pelly Pelly makes a reference to Boba Fett like is Din there to to kill Boba Fett uh, of course not we wouldn't do that already he just helped him take power why would he kill him already that's no fun um but again sort of like that first shot around Pelly's garage of the speed racers or speed racers of the of the of the speeders racing around the town right crashing into into the various things as people get all hyped up in the in the for the coming race. And, of course, Pelly's got a scam going on with some Jawas. There are stripping speeders that are parked on the side of the road and selling the parts back to the owners, probably for a sizable profit, uh, with Pelly reminding the Jawas to make sure that they paint the parts so they look different. Uh, it's a good practice. <laughs> it's a good scam, honestly. Uh, why not uh, Why not <laughs> rip off the locals, I guess? I, you, know? you would think that people might be wise to Pelly's scams, but apparently she's just that charismatic, that charming. And that is, of course, Amy Sedaris herself. So, that's where we catch up with Din as he arrives on his N1 Starfighter parking, uh, and he comes to Pelly for the memory circuit that he needs to reactivate our good friend IG-11. And we are very quickly told 
that. Uh, that's good luck with that. The Jawas can't find us, so that that's over. Um, and this is a very interesting. <laughs> interesting is the right word. This is sort of my, my nitpick with the episode of the show. It's like we spent so much time last week with Din, uh, going way out of his way, talking to the Anzellans, and and doing all these things to reassemble IG Eleven because he needs a, this droid to go to to take it to Mandalore to go spelunking with him through the the mines of more of um, I almost said Moria through the mines of Mandalore. And, you know, we're told that it's a pretty big deal. And again, last week we spent a big chunk of time with Din on this sort of quest to reactivate IG-11. Um, and almost immediately we are told that, nah, don't worry. We got R5-D4 with us. He can handle it. <laughs> and um, that, that felt odd to me. Again, it's a nitpick. It's a tiny one. But after investing so much time in reactivating IG-11 last week... To have the story sort of, sort of shelved this quickly is a little bit of, of a bold move, uh, storytelling-wise. But it does make me think that possibly the IG-11 storyline will come up later in, in the series uh, at, a, at a more vital time for Din Djarin when he will need more of an ally on his side uh, than, than simply someone to take air samples and go uh, spelunking with him. So Peli convinces... Din to take R5. She reinstalls the droid port so that he can be in the N1 Starfighter. Grogu will sit up front with, with Din, and we're off on our merry way. And uh, I did like the, the sort of acknowledgement of R5-D4's backstory, uh, his role as, as a hero of the Rebellion. Uh, once again, Peli's garage is full of, of, of great droid throwbacks, to pit droids in particular. But we still see she has a BD unit. Is, he B- is it BD-1 from Fallen Order? I like to think so. But we still have zero confirmation on that. We have no, we don't know the ultimate fate of Cal Kestis or BD One, but it's fun to pretend we do, and and so I love seeing I love I love the BD unit. It's one of my favorite things they've done in Star Wars in the last ten years. Uh, so seeing the BD unit at the garage was still very very exciting. But yeah, a little bit of a nitpick as as we sort of shift gears really rapidly from uh, bringing IG Eleven back online to R Five D Four, a classic callback to uh, to a New Hope. And, 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 hey, it works out fine. It, it really does. Uh, so from this point on, we rocket our way to Mandalore. And much like last week, uh, while Grogu's in the cockpit with Din, uh, Din is, is talking to him about the finer points of navigation, of how to read the, the gauges and the star charts and, and know where you're going and how to get to and from, which is going to be a vitally important element that, that we're glad Grogu was paying attention to um, as this episode progresses. Uh, as they, they arrive at, in the Mandalore system, right up close to the planet, Din calls out for the first time. He points to the moon of Concordia. Now, we did speculate that last week that was where the opening scene took place, the initiation of a, of a, of a foundling into taking the creed uh, and putting on his helmet. Uh, we, again, we, I don't think I found confirmation of that actually being Concordia, but this is a nice moment right there where he points to it, says it, it's, it's, it's there. We acknowledge the existence of Concordia uh, uh, in live action, which is great. We also talk about Kalavala, the moon where Bo-Katan's castle is at. And and these things are pointed out for a very distinct reason because they come in very, very handy later in the episode. Uh, our first impressions of Mandalore as we see Mandalore, it is, it is not the vibrant green world that we saw in Star Wars The Clone Wars anymore. We know about the Night of a Thousand Tears, the mass bombing of the planet by the Empire. And uh, now the the... Weapons they used, they talk, you know, Din talks about it as he enters the atmosphere. The, the planet's ravaged by storms in the upper atmosphere. Uh, and when they get through those storms, 
they know that they're going to be out of communication shot. They won't be able to call for help. So if something goes wrong on the surface of Mandalore, uh, they'll have to they're, – they're on their own is, is the way Din puts it. Uh, so they park. They find a place outside of the city of Sandali – Sandari, excuse me. And we park and we send our 5D4 out to, to find out the vital information that we need. Is the planet surface breathable? Now, this is one of those things that I think if you watch Star Trek, you take for granted because they just do a sensor sweep and they know all that stuff right away. Apparently in Star Wars, you got to get more involved. you got to send your droid down there to check things out first. And that's exactly what Din does. And, and you know, R5-D4 is a bit of a scaredy cat. But through some, some prodding, some goading, some haranguing, Din gets him to begin to investigate. And they're kind of tra tracking his progress on the scopes of the N1 Starfighter while Grogu and, and, and Din are safely inside the uh, uh, cockpit there, breathing the breathable air. Now another nitpick comes up here in a second as, as R5-D4 goes off the scopes. And Din's like, well, let me seal up my helmet and I'll go out there. Well, that's cool. Sealing your helmet, that's got to be a practical thing, right? But couldn't he have sealed up his helmet and just gone out and conducted his own uh, atmospheric readings? Done that on his own? You have to go through all this hullabaloo to get a droid to go do it for us? I don't know. Again, a nitpick. But of what I consider to be a dang great episode of The Mandalorian, these nitpicks are small potatoes. These are nothing. These are just sort of like random things I thought of as we watched the episode of the show. <laughs> but Din seals up his helmet, seals up the cockpit so Grogu can stay in there safe and sound, uh, and Din goes to investigate what happened to R5-D4. And that's when, 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 as he enters the ruins of Sundari, that we come across uh, the uh, the Alamites for the first time. We, they're not identified initially, not until later in the episode, but Alamites, they lived in the, in the wastelands outside of the city, and apparently they have survived the bombing and now moved into the city proper. Um, visually, they remind me a lot of the Morlocks from uh, from H.G. Wells's uh, the, the film version of of uh, um, um, why am I blanking on the name of it? The Time Machine. My goodness, the time <laughs> the Time Machine uh, with you know when it, when uh, uh, the character goes into the future, the far far future with the Eloy and the Morlocks. They kind of remind me of those Morlocks in a, in a visual sense, but they are they are sort of. Uh, the survivors of the of the Imperial bombing, the Night of a Thousand Tears, and they've moved in to where the Mandalorians used to live. They've made those caves their home now, uh, and they're looking to eat eat people. <laughs> and and R five D four wasn't good enough, but it baits Din into, into entering. And uh, yeah, he's able to dispatch them, and he uses the dark saber for a big chunk of it. And this is our reminder. This is sort of our callback again. If people skipped or missed out on the book of Boba Fett. We spent some time with Din trying to train with the Darksaber. And him not having the sort of requisite skill set at this time to wield the Darksaber effectively. And we see that in this episode. Like, if you're wondering, like, why is Din struggling with his blade? It seems like he, he can barely lift it. He wields it clumsily. Um, that's, th that's sort of detailed more in the Book of Ophel. They sort of talk about that, how... Uh, you have to learn how to work with the saber. You have to be one with the dark saber, right? You can't fight against it. And Din fights against it. He wants it to do what he wants it to do. He's not kind of in the harmony required, uh, the spiritual harmony required to wield the dark saber most effectively. And we'll see the opposite of that later in this episode as well, as someone wields the dark saber masterfully. 
<laughs> and again, it's that compare and contrast that's going to be interesting to talk about down the road here. Uh, as as we, well, of course, have to broach the subject of who is fit to lead the Mandalorians, because it's going to come up. It's just going to come up. But again, it's a nice callback to see see Din Djarin struggle uh, mightily with the dark saber and and. You know, the Alamites seemed like they were somewhat formidable, but but Din should have made short work of them. And and the fact that he struggled so mightily with the Darksaber uh, says a lot. It says a lot about the guy. <laughs> but this opens up things. He recovers R5-D4. They go back to the N1, and they find out that, indeed, the surface is breathable. The planet's not cursed. Uh, and, and, and Bo-Katan is right about that. So sort of a, a Children of the Watch myth has been dispelled. And, and again, like Bo-Katan was like, you know, she talked about it last week, you know, these children's stories and, and things of that nature that the, the watch feeds to uh, foundlings and younglings at the, at the time. This allows Din and Grogu to go search for the mines and to make their way down into the underbelly of Sundari, right? And we see some creatures, we see a lot of uh, familiar architecture from Star Wars The Clone Wars from the, the time that Ahsoka was pursuing uh, Darth Maul through through various tunnels of, of a familiar design to this. Like, I won't say they were the exact same tunnels. That'd be silly. But you can you can recognize uh, the visual style put in place on both shows. There's a, little, there's a lot of visual continuity in these episodes, which is really, really cool to see. Um, and eventually, they think they might have found a way down into the mines. You know, they're trying to track the flow of the water and trying to find the living waters. Again, this is what we're here for. I didn't restate it, but we know. Din's here. He needs to bathe in the living waters in the mines of Mandalore so that he can be forgiven for removing his helmet and, and, and not be no longer be an apostate, be welcomed back into uh, the Children of the Watch, back into his uh, covert, if you will, the one run by the armorer so efficiently. And they think they see their way down, and... You know, we find out that the Alamites are not the only people surviving on Mandalore right now, as Din finds himself in a trap, uh, baited there by the remains of a, of a broken and shattered uh, Mandalorian helmet. And then these, these, these claws spring out of the dirt around him and cra- trap him. And, and they put him in like this small little metal thing. He can't even move. He's in there real, real tight. There's no budging. There's no wiggling. There's no getting out of it. The question I have, and again, it's a nitpick, brace yourselves, but just how long was that thing there? Was it just sitting there waiting for weeks, months, days, years? Like, who knows? To, to spring that trap, or did it know that Din was there? Did it sense Din in his presence, and it, it laid in wait, that giant spider-like, scorpion-like droid that sprung the trap on Din Djarin? I don't know. We never get an answer to that. But Din is, is captured, incapacitated, unable to free himself. And so Grogu follows as as his father, his adopted father, is being taken away by this creature. And we find, we see, we can see, this droid has a very unique visual look. It's kind of scary. It's kind of dark. It's mysterious. Uh, and it has a floating eyeball in it. So it's like a weird sort of bio-organic droid form that uh, has captured in for whatever purpose we don't know yet. But obviously it sort of reminds us a bit of General Grievous uh, because it's a, it's a sort of bio-organic droid, right? Like there's a biological organic component in there moving around, and perhaps it needs the, these droid carapaces to live? I'm not sure. We don't get any real answers to that question. <laughs> but once Grogu realizes he can't free Din on his own, um, 
and just makes a, a, a racket and draws the attention of the droid. Once, okay, oh, I didn't even talk about that part. But once they get back to the lair of this droid-like creature, uh, it comes out of that giant mechanized spider-like scorpion-like uh, 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 body, and it moves into a smaller body, uh, a more sanguine, liquid. Uh, oh, we'll go with sanguine body, right? Very live, <laughs> and it 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 strips Din of his weapons and does all these things before it moves off and Grogu goes to attempt to rescue him. Uh, this Grievous-like droid <laughs> is the best way I can sort of describe it. He comes after Grogu once Grogu fails at trying to free Din from it. Uh, and Din's parting words to Grogu as he tells him to run is to go get Bo-Katan. And that, my friends, is what happens. And I really like the shot of of Grogu jumping in his pram, hitting the little buttons, and then taking off, just like bolting out of there. Uh, and and it's a it's some really neat uh, direction as we follow the pram, as it bolts its way back through the cavernous ruins of Sundari. Uh, the creature in the sewers lurches out and tries to get tries to get Grogu at one point. It's it's really fun visually. I really like this element of it. Uh, and it's this point, and that creature pursues actually. Grogu, but we also get an Alamite attempting to block the escape of Grogu, and that's like the shot from the trailer where you see Grogu use the force push to shove the Alamite out of the cavern and out of his way. Meanwhile, that that uh, lizard flying creature thingy is also in hot pursuit, but Grogu escapes into the cockpit and safety of the N1. He indicates where he needs to go to R5-D4. Pretty handy to have an astronaut droid now, right? <laughs> And they take off out of the atmosphere of Mandalore, and they head to Kavala to recruit Bo-Katan. Maybe I didn't make myself clear the last time. I want to be left alone. What happened to him? Download the astromech, find out where they were. So indeed, R5-D4 and... Grogu return to Kalevala to get Bo-Katan to help rescue Din Djarin. And, of course, Bo initially is bitter Bo, as we saw last week on the uh, on the first episode of the season. Uh, but when she realizes that Din is not in the ship and Grogu's come to her alone, she knows something's wrong, and uh, she doesn't hesitate in springing into action, showing that, you know, d still deep inside, Bo-Katan is going to do what Bo-Katan needs to do to help Din Djarin and a fellow Mandalorian, right? Even if he is a child of the Watch, he has helped her in the past, and they, they have a sort of, if not a friendship, at least a uh, mutual, tolerable <laughs> respect for each other, <laughs> I think is maybe the most efficient way to put that. But this allows us, we, we go, we transfer into, into Bo-Katan's wonderful ship, and we take off back to Mandalore, and we sort of, we sort of retrace the journey that Grogu and Din went on when they first got to Mandalore, but now we're hearing uh, things sort of from Bo-Katan's side of, of, of things, because, you know, when when it was first Din and Grogu, and, and Din somehow, he's never been to Mandalore. You know, he was raised on Concordia, and, you know, because the Death Watch, they were they were outcasts, right? They weren't allowed on the planet. The, you know, during the Clone Wars, uh, it, the, uh, uh, excuse me, my goodness, Mandalore was, was on a different track. It was, it was a peaceful, neutral world. Uh, and the children of the Watch opposed that, so they were banished to Concordia. Din has never set foot on Mandalore, and so we get a little glimpse into into that world from Din. But now we go back with with Bo-Katan, and we're hearing about it from her side, 
uh, at least a little bit. You know, she's I think she's somewhat guarded still about what she'll share and what she won't. But she does talk about she sort of recalls the glory of Mandalore in the uh, before the Imperial uh, bombardment and and before the the Mandalorian civil wars even. Um, just kind of calling back to the two the glorious days of yesterday yesteryear for for Mandalore. Uh, and and Din is going to kind of excuse me, Bo is going to kind of continue this journey as as we sort of retrace Din Djarin's steps uh, because now we're getting some extra contextual information from Bo-Katan from her perspective on things, her outlook on things. Um, you know, again, we will talk about, you know, Bo faces off against some Alamites. She handles them in a much more efficient, effective way than Din, showing that Din still has a lot to learn about being uh, a better fighter uh, because the way that uh, Bo anticipates the trap is able to handle the Alamites in a very efficient and effective way. It's a lot different than, than what happened when, when Din squared off against them. You know, he walked right into their trap. He sprung the trap, essentially. He sprung two traps in this episode, basically. Um, and he didn't handle himself well in either of his, his, his uh, physical engagements. He, he came out on top, but he didn't uh, acquit himself as well as, as Bo-Katan by any stretch. And this also shows Bo-Katan as, as an insanely capable fighter. You know, she's been around longer than, than Din. She's been doing this a lot longer than him. So... Seeing that that level of, of the the difference in levels of skill, uh, I think is something to uh, take note of. The one interesting comment is, and again, is a, it's a line that we heard in the trailer, but now we have the context for it. And I do think it's, I still think it's a strange line. It still hits my ear, and it sounds strange when Din looks at Gro. I'm sorry, when Bo looks at Grogu, and says, "Did you think your father was the only Mandalorian?" And it's like, no, he's seen you before. <laughs> He's seen he's seen Casca uh, uh, Reeves in the in the other one. Like he's seen Mandalorians in action before. I, I'm, I'm it's such a weird line to me. Um, I again, you know, Bo's just making chat chatter. Uh, she's just chatting with uh, with a uh, Grogu who's not really chatting back. So, uh, you know, unless she's really good at interpreting his his gurgles, uh, you know, she's just kind of chatting for chatting's sake. I guess I suppose. <laughs> I don't know. I, again, it's just one of those lines. It just sort of struck me a little weird, but it's still fun. Gosh darn it! And and now we make our way to the lair of this droid, organic droid creature, uh, and we see that now it's it's plugging these tubes into Din and it's hooking him up to some kind of pumping droid, and it's taking his blood. Why is he taking his blood? <laughs> well, we don't have to wait long to find out because Bo-Katan springs into action, and. Uh, just begins to whoop up on this droid. I also should mention that we do see Bo-Katan's, uh, her shield that she breaks out. We've seen other Mandalorians use this, but it's nice to see Bo-Katan break hers out because it's very um, um, emblematic of her uh, from from the Clone Wars, from Star Wars Rebels. So nice to see her using the plane, her little, little shield on her gauntlet. And uh, she does really, really well against this droid scavenger creature living in the depths of Sundari. And this is where she grabs the Darksaber and springs into action with it. Uh, and we see her just cut that guy to pieces really quickly. Now he does. The droid head comes off that Grievous-ish-like body and retreat to the bigger, larger, spider, scary, scorpion droid thingy. Uh, and Bo has to spring into action against, the, against him too as after Din alerts her to his presence behind her. But... Again, with the Darksaber in her hands, we see uh, how insanely capable Bo-Katan is with the Darksaber, how she wields it with, with style, with grace, with aplomb even. 
and and it's the opposite of Din Djarin. And you know, I sort of made the made the reference, the sort of the joke earlier, like this episode's sort of like make Bo Katan great again, right? So we're we're seeing her with the dark saber, um, and we see again. In in one sense, very fit to be the wielder of the dark saber, but we have to wonder if she's fit to be the ruler, the leader of the Mandalorian people, and that's sort of where we're what we're gonna, I think, spend a lot of time in season three getting uh, into the meat of is is it Bo, or is it Din, and if it's Din, Din's gonna have to learn how to wield that thing, and is is Bo Katan the teacher that he needs to figure out how to wield the dark saber? Um, let's let's. Put a pin in that for a second. We'll come back to that. Let's get back into the episode. Uh, because Din is now freed by Bo-Katan. They, they, uh, uh, Bo makes some pog soup for Grogu and, and Din to, to, to enjoy. And then she's like, we'll get back out of the ship. We're going to get out of here. He's like, no, no, no. I'm on a mission. We're going down to the mines. Peace. <laughs> uh, and he's, and he's, he's not that he's not great. He says it. He's like, I am forever in your debt. You saved my life. But I have to do this. I have to. I can no longer be an apostate. I have to be welcomed back into my, my covert, back into the fold, back into the watch. And reluctantly, begrudgingly, but now that she's on Mandalore, um, Bo decides to take him. And I think she takes him with the intent of, of sort of dispelling these, these, child, these children's stories that the watch seems to spin uh, for their families, for their, for, their, for their young ones to help initiate them into the belief, into the cause. And, and and I think Bo's initial reasoning to take him down there, A, she says he'll never find it without her, but B, is I think she wants to prove that there's nothing special down there in, in the quote-unquote living waters beneath the mines of Mandalore. Uh, and it's on this journey now that Bo and Din are together that we hear some more about Bo Katan's backstory. We hear more elements of her uh, upbringing, her father, uh, her taking the creed, but how it was for um, it wasn't it was it was pomp and circumstance, right? It was it was like a, a show for the people of of Mandalore, and it didn't mean what it means to Din. And again, we're seeing the contrast in the ideologies between Din Djarin and Pokatan. You know, she was raised as royalty, and raised that these were these were just stories. These were these were, these were things to tell children. And D- Din and the children of the Watch, they fervently believe these things. They are in one sense, the true believers of Mandalore, right? And Bo is is a sort of a character without faith, and Din is the character with faith. And you have to wonder, at some point, they're going to meet in the middle, right? Like, they're going to find a way to connect to each other, a way to see each other's point of views. So what I want to do is I want to go ahead and play the the, the conversation that they, they have about Bo-Katan taking the creed uh, and, and, and sort of listen to, like, the tone that she has and and listen to Din's sort of reverence for for her father basically like check it out there there's a there seems to be again these two characters who have wildly different ideologies about what Mandalore is um again if I have a little moment of of, of mutual respect when it comes to uh Bo talking about her father yes when i was a child really I was part of the royal family. I took the creed and was showered with gifts. But the rituals were all just theater for our subjects. They loved watching the princess recite the Mandalorian tenants as her father looked on proudly. Such a heartwarming spectacle. 
Maybe he was proud. I know he was. I didn't embarrass him in front of everyone. Your father sounds like an interesting man. I would have liked to have known him. He was a great man. He died defending Mandalore. This is the way. Just a, a just a nice little moment there where where Bo sort of realizes that that while he may be a child of the watch, Din is not a fanatic. He's not a lunatic. Um, and, and the defense of Mandalore uh, is important. It's symbolic. It means something uh, to die defending your homeworld. Uh, what also is said in that exchange is also very, very interesting, too. We still don't have direct reference from Bo-Katan to her sister, Satine, who became the Duchess and ruled Mandalore uh, during his pacifist era. But, but Bo makes reference to the fact that she, when, when Bo-Katan herself took the creed, she didn't embarrass her father. And you have to wonder if Satine perhaps did at another point uh, when it was her time to take the creed and to do these things. With, with Satine's pacifist nature, uh, it seems likely that she would refuse to take the creed, refuse to don uh, the helmet and the armor and, and all the Mandalorian traditions. It's, it sounds like Satine would, would have eschewed these traditions in favor of this pacifist uh, agenda that she had and that she brought to Mandalore after the Mandalorian Civil Wars. Again, we're speculating. I, I, I hope we get more answers on this front later. It would be very interesting to hear uh, Bo-Katan talk about her sister in other ways and how she sort of looks at it now with, uh, with, with time, the passage of time, and the, and the decisions that she made that affected Satine and Satine's decisions as well. Uh, it'll be interesting to sort of examine those if we get the chance to down the road. Um, next up is the entering the chamber of the living waters and it's pretty awesome. So let's go ahead and hear this part. Cause this part, as we first enter the mines again, Bo's down there to sort of dispel the notion of this mystical quality of the living waters. Right? So she's there and she's still per per uh, perpetrating the sort of, it's a child story. Uh, and she's going to give Bo the full, I'm uh, sorry, Bo is going to give Din the full story. Uh, which I sort of enjoy her tone of voice on this. Let's check it out. Hold on. I want you to get the full tour. These mines date back to the age of the first Mandalore. According to ancient folklore, the mines were once a mythosaur lair. Mandalore the Great is said to have tamed the mythical beast. It is from these legends that the Skull Signet was adopted and became the symbol of our planet. This is it. Din, are you all right? I think it's important to, to mention right now, at this moment, Din is having a, a serious moment. Like, this is a, a holy pilgrimage for him. And he is now where he needs to be to atone for his perceived sins in the eyes of his covert, right? This is a holy moment for him. Again, Din Djarin is a true believer in the tenets of the, of the Mandalorian creeds. Bo-Katan is not. Bo-Katan has lost her faith. And what's going to happen next will, I think, change both of them in, in very profound ways. 
uh, as they sort of begin to understand each other, even in a, in a more, um, in a in a better, more productive way, hopefully moving forward. I swear on my name and the names of the ancestors that I shall walk the way of the Mandalore and the words of the creed shall be forever forged in my heart. All right, so... Bo springs into action as, you know, before, moments ago, she was looking on in sort of, sort of adoration, right? Sort of uh, appreciation for this man reciting the creed and taking it so seriously. It, it, I think it sort of sparks a little something in her at that moment. Uh, and then, just as he reaches the, the important part of, of the creed forever being in his heart, he is sucked down into the depths of the living waters. And Bo springs into action uh, and by the way, you know, he's wearing that Beskar. You sink pretty fast, but Bo is able to use her, her pack to, to propel herself downwards in an effort to find Din Djarin, who's all the way at the bottom. Now, there's no clips we can play here. There's no more talking. It's all visual. It's all sight. But once she reaches the bottom and finds Din, she's able to bring him up. And it's on the way up that her light on the side of her helmet glances across something Something with texture. Something with scales. Is that a horn? And then the eye. The great eye of what can only be the mythosaur itself. And as they rocket out of the living waters, back to the steps where Grogu waits, both are shaken. Bo, probably more so, because now these things that she's taken as children's stories, as myths, as as just legends, uh, uh, to, 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 again, to tell to the children of Mandalore. Oh, it's real. There's a real live mythosaur in the living waters in the minds of Mandalore. And I think it will change Bo-Katan in a very profound way moving forward. And, and hopefully Din saw it as well. I want to believe that Din saw it. <laughs> that he was aware enough to catch a glimpse of the mighty mythosaur in the living waters below. So now, again, we don't like to normally speculate on the show, but they seem to be setting us up for it. They, they have shown us Boba Fett riding a Rancor. Will we see either Bo-Katan or Din Djarin riding atop the mighty Mythosaur to rally the people of Mandalore once again? Well, time will tell, my friends. And again, this, this brings us to that question. Who will lead Mandalore going forward? Does... This changed Bo-Katan's outlook. This revelation that the Creed was onto something, the Creed was right about things. I'm sorry, the, not the Creed, the Watch. Not the children of the Watch. Their belief in these things was real. And does it affect her in a way? Because remember, she was part of the Death Watch for some time. But 
her motivations may have been very different at the time. Now, does she have slightly more in common with them than she did before? Will she be a mentor to Din Djarin? Or will she grab for power once again? Will this invigorate her to think that she's like the chosen one now? She has seen the myth of Thor. She will take the Darksaber and she will ride that sucker out onto the fields of Mandalore and, and bring the wayward Mandalorian children home again. Or is that Din's role to play? I, you know, the, we talked about it before, the conflict between these two characters. I want to I believe they'll have a partnership. I want them to be friends. <laughs> I really do. But conflict is better for drama. So does this put them on a parallel path with each other, hand in hand, metaphorically speaking, or on a, on a, on a trajectory and a collision course with one another for the leadership of the people of Mandalore, for the, the to, 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 who, you know, who starts that new age? Is it under Bo-Katan's uh, uh, rule or is it under Din Djarin's? You know, Bo may think she has the right to rule, She's from from the royal family. She's wielded the dark saber before. She wields it effectively and efficiently. Or is it time for a new leadership? Someone who has believed in these tenets all his life. And that's going to be sort of the question, right? Like uh, we're going to come in, into conflict with with with, with, the, with the very different ideologies of the of the Mandalorian people. Uh, and I think that's going to be really really fun to explore as we move forward. But I think, by and large, this is an episode that's really great for Bo-Katan. Uh, again, I said it again. We took we had Bitter Bo before, and now we're on the, the Make Bo Great Again track. Uh, and I'm really, really digging that a whole heck of a lot. Uh, and again, the, the, the revelation of the Mythosaur in the Living Waters, uh, that is a game changer. That flips everything on its head <laughs> as far as, as the future of the Mandalorian people go. Because, yeah, it's, it's, this, this show is no longer about Din and, and Grogu solely. It's it's about so much more, and it's been being teased for quite some time, that this show will be about, hopefully, the rise and unification of the Mandalorian people. And I am here for that all day long. I cannot wait. This episode is, is simply stellar. Again, I, I shared my nits that I picked with you earlier, but by the, the second half of this episode is just so freaking phenomenal. Uh, this is nine buckets. Easy. Easy peasy. And the way we leave things, and there's not even a word said. Again, they just come out of the living waters, and it's silence. They can't even speak. <laughs> it's phenomenal. Really, really, really well done. Well executed, well handled. Everything about this this episode is great. Uh, one little note I did have is, in case we haven't noticed, there is uh, a new composer on the show, uh, Ludwig Gornson had to step away from season three of The Mandalorian due to some other commitments he had, uh, and and Joseph Shirley has stepped in, and I, and I think Joseph Shirley has done a very admirable job, but I do miss sort of like the little subtle uh, nuances that Ludwig would incorporate into the scores of the episode, and there I may just be in a bit of an adjustment period, uh, but I, I I do miss Ludwig at this point, but Joseph Shirley is uh, stepping in admirably. At this point, so I did want to point out the musical score, but this is a great episode. Watch it 17 more times, like I'm gonna do. It's so so good. Nine buckets, baby. Good stuff. And again, uh, I just love getting to explore the mythology of the Mandalorian people and, and getting into the creed and talking about these things and uh, just getting into that history and sort of cementing uh, what the Mandalorian people and their, their culture and their beliefs really are all about. Because again, you know, we have a lot of over the years, over the over the life of Star Wars, there's been a lot of, of Mandalorian backstory. Some of it's been thrown out. 
some of it's been embraced and and I'd love to see us kind of keep cementing more and more of it because it's just it's wonderfully rich and compelling stuff and I'm, I'm here for it all day long all day all right I think with that we will transition now to Star Wars the Bad Batch season 2 episode 12 the outpost original air date March 8th 2023 written by Jennifer Corbett directed by Brad Rao and Nathaniel Villanueva our plot now this plot <laughs> it's something else. A new friend is made on a harsh and unforgiving outpost planet. That is a colorfully, that's a rose-colored way to say that, uh, <laughs> in, my, in my humble estimation, because if there's one thing about this episode, <laughs> it's not a rose-colored episode by any stretch. This episode is uh, dark and brutal and painful. <laughs> Our cast this week, D. Bradley Baker, is the Bad Batch who aren't even in this episode. <laughs> but he's the clone troopers, he's Mayday, he's Veach, he's, he's everybody, uh, uh, including Crosshair, of course. Shelby Young is Captain Bragg, Keisha Castle-Hughes is Emery Carr, Crispin Freeman is Lieutenant Nolan, and Max C. Hampton is the conscripted stormtrooper that we hear from in this episode. So let's go ahead and transition in that proper. Go ahead, keep on your buckets. Let's do this. CT-9904. You're out of uniform. I'm Lieutenant Nolan, your commanding officer for this mission. We're heading to the Imperial Depot on Barton 4. High-value cargo stored there has been targeted by local insurgents. We're to secure it until it's transferred at week's end. No kidding. Fantastic. More clones. Problem. Sir. Yes. I don't like used equipment. Let's go. Well, if you don't think that Imperial Douche Canoe Lieutenant Gorman is a real piece of work right away, then you're not paying that much attention. <laughs> but this is a, this episode of Star Wars The Bad Batch is uh, it, very unique. Much like earlier in the season where we follow... Crosshair on his mission with Commander Cody. Um, this is sort of exploring Crosshair's perspective as he is in the middle of the clones being phased out, being pushed away. Right before Gorman, or right before Nolan arrives, you know, we see uh, Lieutenant Bragg leading a group of clone troopers into what they say to her face is forced retirement. You know, what are they supposed to do now? Uh, as as so, the conscripted army's in place, and now these these. Um, what word do we want to use to describe the type of Imperial that Lieutenant Nolan is? These sort of uh, aristocratic, bureaucratic, you know, douche canoes is probably the nicest word I can say. Um, because they're just, they're awful. They hate clones. There is a, there's this, this we, we, we've seen it swelling uh, in, in the time of, of the Bad Batch. Of this, this sort of notion that the clones are bad. They're not good. They're awful troopers. They're 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 not loyal to the empire, to the emperor. They don't get the job done. There's there's sort of been like this this sort of uh, the the script has been flipped on them. They're no longer the heroes of the republic that they were. They are old, worn out, phased out, not a, not effective in this new empire. Um, and Nolan represents the, the, the that new imperial military that believes that they are flawed and faulty and 
too independent thinking, I suppose, would also be a way to, 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 to view what they think of the clones. But no one says it, too. He says it right there. Like, your old resources, your, 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 I don't like old to tools. You know, I don't like old resources. I like the new shiny things. And I think uh, Nolan is far from alone in his sentiments, right? Like, the clones represent the old era. They represent the Republic. Uh, and, and so in, in this new empire, there's no place for them. We've talked about it before. But we get to explore that through Crosshair in this episode. And that's I think that's a really unique perspective on things because we're really getting to Crosshair's kind of breaking point, right? We started to see that on the mission with Cody where he's starting to realize that the clones aren't appreciated, the clones aren't respected, they aren't uh, being treated the way they should be treated for, for everything they did during the Clone Wars. So we arrive to Barton Four, and we meet uh, Commander Mayday and the survivors of this outpost that the Empire has ignored since the end of the war and you know has allowed to get picked off one by one, slowly, 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 as Mayday's requests for backup, for new supplies, for repairs on equipment, have all gone ignored. So Nolan walks into this situation where uh, he believes that, that Mayday has not been a very good leader. And I want to go ahead, and there's a funny moment right before they arrive at the outpost, um, when they are arriving into the atmosphere of Barton for and they hit a little turbulence. And the clone troopers don't think anything of it. They're used to it. But you see Barton grab the safety straps on his uh, on his harness, right, to kind of secure himself. Because, again, we know this guy talks a lot, but he hasn't done anything. He has no history at all in in, in combat situations, in, in, in the field, in leadership. And uh, that is sort of where I want to start this a little playback here for you. Let's go ahead and cue that up right now. I think we're in the right spot. Let's get it. Where is your supervisor? You must be our reinforcements. We expected you 36 rotations ago. Did you get lost? We work on the Empire's schedule, Trooper, not yours. It's Commander, Lieutenant. Well, Commander, your orders were to guard and protect this facility and its cargo. Yet this outpost is grossly unguarded. Where are the rest of your men? Dead. Hex, Veach, and I, we're all that's left. Your failings will be dealt with later. For now, I am in charge here until the cargo is transported. I feel safer already. Look here, clone. You speak to me with respect. In my experience, respect is something to be earned. Yet the Empire assigned you to this desolate rock, where you let the majority of your squad get killed. Tell me, Lieutenant. How many missions have you commanded? That's what I thought. Boys, why don't you help the new boss get situated? So Crosshair is standing and watching this whole transaction, or uh, transaction, this whole interaction here. Um, and I love Commander Mayday so immediately in this episode because he is just 
weary and beaten down by the by being ignored, by being put on this on this outpost with no backup, no supplies. Uh, it has worn him down. It's taken him to a, a, a breaking point of his own. And, you know, you see his armor. Uh, it's it's wrapped in 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 uh, some kind of cloth substance. I don't know if that's to keep it help help keep it together or to help keep him insulated from the cold on this on this barren, desolate outpost where they are. But it's it's so unique and it's so opposite of what the new stormtroopers will be moving forward. I mean, think about it. We you know. In the clone era, the clones would personalize their armor. They had unique personalities. They had identities. And uh, we're seeing that phased out as this constricted army comes in that is all of one mind, right? That's all of, you know, the Empire's order, right? So uniformity in, in every way, right? Uniforms much match. There is no identity. There's no personality. There is is no independent thought. Uh, that's also what we're seeing phased out from the time of the Republic to the time of the Empire. They don't want independent thinkers. They don't want creativity and individuality. They want that sort of thing suppressed. They want just automatons, in a, in a sense. Like, you would think, the in, in, in one sense, the Empire would be better off with an armory of droids, but that's not practical for the Empire, for their purposes. No, no, no. You need to show humans in that position so that they can exert their control in that regard to make this thing, this is something that other beings want to be part of. And it's it's all part of the disguise of the Empire's tyranny, right? So let's uh, let's check it out as Mayday and Crosshair begin their first engagement. You uh, know the lieutenant well? For about two hours. <laughs> two hours too long, I bet. So, what'd you do to get stuck with this mission? Just lucky, I guess. <laughs> yeah. The name's Mayday. Crosshair. Welcome to the outpost. I'll give you a lay of the land. So... You hear Crosshair's reluctance, right, to kind of engage with another clone. He's been seeing clones deserting, leaving the military, and and Crosshair sort of he feels like he's chosen his lot, right? He is a good soldier, and good soldiers follow orders. That's his thing, right? But now he's seeing things that are starting to cause him to question that, and this mission here on the outpost is going to shake him to his core, because, again. In the time of the of the Republic, with a different leadership in place, the clones had each other to rely on. They followed orders. They understood their orders. Now they're treated like disposable tools. That's the best way to describe it. And that is exactly what they get dumped on in this mission. Uh, as the insurgents strike and steal some cargo containers that infuriates Lieutenant Nolan to no end, and he dispatches Mayday and Crosshair to recover those two crates. Uh, it's a insane <laughs> request in hostile conditions with the weather and against the hostile enemies themselves. But it puts Mayday and Crosshair together, right? And there's these two characters who have seen and experienced uh, a lot from their time in the Clone Wars 
to the transition into the empire. And, you know, Crosshair is distant. He's cold. He is not um, the best brother to fellow clones any longer. But Mayday sort of sparks something in him, sort of helps him to remember the brotherhood amongst the clones. And that, um, I don't, I'm trying to think if there's any, I don't want to play too many sound clips for you guys because it's a very action heavy episode. Um, and it's more through the actions of Mayday and um, Crosshair that we get things together. But there's one conversation I think I have to queue up, and I, it, it's so important uh, for this episode. I want to find it for you right now. Actually, I'll take it back. There's a couple different conversations that are really important. One, when they find the dead insurgent, and <laughs> and, and Crosshair makes a, a, a reference of you know not carrying dead weight with them, and and Mayday's like, well, don't remind me not to die with you around. Uh, and then there's another bit. Uh, when Crosshair steps on the pressure mine and Mayday has to uh, attempt to disarm it so that they can advance in their mission. Now, this is after the big fight where uh, they, they kill the insurgents, they recover the cargo, and they're, they're moving their way down the hill to get, a, to get said cargo when they realize what it is that they've been risking their lives for. Uh, and I think this for Crosshair, this is another another moment. You know, th those two conversations I've just mentioned are are important. They big deal. They they sort of highlight Crosshair's sort of errant thinking on things and how far away he's strayed from being part of the Brotherhood of the Clones. Uh, but I think when they realize what they've been pursuing, what they've been attempting to recover for the Empire, uh, I think that changes things drastically. Here, we've been risking our lives to recover equipment we could have been wearing this whole time. It's not clown trooper gear. Right. New toys for the shiny new military. And we get the scraps. After all the clowns have done. All we've sacrificed. We're good soldiers. We followed orders. And for what? All right. And if that doesn't get Crosshair thinking, I don't know what does. But what happens next is uh, the action, the explosions, the, the gunfire. It's triggered an avalanche, and they're about to be in a bad spot. Now, they both survived the avalanche, but Mayday's in bad shape. And, and no one's coming to get them. They have to hike across this, this tundra uh, with, with Mayday on one leg. No water, no supplies, no resources. It's just them against the elements uh, trying to aid an empire that's not even sending out a search party for them, trying to recover them because they're just clones. They're just useless, empty resources, right? And, and again, it's going to change Crosshair in a profound way. So after spending a night in this freezing Arctic tundra storm, um, <laughs> they make their way back to the base. And and life has sort of like moved on without them, right? The conscripted, they, they see shuttles arriving. Uh, the new stormtroopers are on the premises. They're moving supplies. Lieutenant Nolan is is administering because he's an administrator, not a, not a soldier, not a leader. Uh, he's a pencil pusher, uh, a, a statistician, perhaps. I don't know. I'm just trying to think of things. Uh, 
but yeah, he 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 supervises. He is a supervisor. He's a piece of poo. <laughs> and as these soldiers, these heroes of the Republic, return after after their mission, uh, his let's just play it because it's it's horrifyingly disgusting. Nolan's reaction and what occurs next. But it's so intense and so impactful for, for Crosshair. About time you two returned. He, he needs a medic. I see you didn't retrieve the crates, which means you failed your mission. Did you hear what I said? Help him. Certainly not. That would be a waste of the Empire's resources. You... He'll die. <sighs> he served his purpose as a soldier of the Empire. You... You could have saved him. Perhaps you didn't hear me. He is expendable. As are you. And if you speak to me again with such disrespect, I'll see to it you meet a similar fate, clone. It's at that moment that the silhouette of the ice vultures that swirl around this planet make their presence known. And I think for Crosshair, it, it's very symptomatic of, of the state of the clones, right? Like they're being left for dead. They're vulture food. And, and Mayday next to him dead on the ground who could have been saved with, with minimal effort from the vast resources of the Empire. And it's at this point that, that Crosshair, I think, begins to realize that he has misplaced his loyalties for a long time now. He put the Empire first in the order of loyalty when it should have been to his brothers, when it should have been to his fellow clones. Um, and and I, I think he's, it, he's been, it's slowly been dawning on him that he's made a mistake. But this cements it. The complete lack of regard for clone life has changed his outlook, I think, forever. And his, what he does next is glorious. Now, leave him and get back to work while you're still useful. Thank you.
shot to the chest with the last bit of strength that Crosshair has left in his body. He ends Lieutenant Gorman. Norman, <laughs> Lieutenant Nolan. My goodness. And I went to aliens, Lieutenant Gorman. Um, <laughs> that moment, this moment crystallizes Crosshair why he's on the wrong side or why he's been making the wrong decisions. And it seems that all is lost for Crosshair, right? Where he's going to be arrested now, held for treason, and and probably executed, right? And then wait, there'll be an ex- and there'll be an episode where the Bad Batch has to rescue him, and <laughs> they'll be reunited, right? 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 Oh, not so fast. Not so fast, because after he passes out from his ordeal in the in the elements, he wakes up, and he doesn't know where he is, but we know where he is. He's now on Wayland in the custody of the science team. And what purposes do they have for Crosshair? Like, again, we think this is a moment where Crosshair is going to realize that the Empire is bad. He should be loyal to his brothers. All these things have just kind of come into his brain. But what's next? His journey's not complete yet. He's not there yet. He's not reuniting with the Batch yet. Somebody has. Obviously, our science director that we met last week has plans for him. Uh, let's kind of check this out as he wakes up on a lab in Wayland. On Wayland. I'm holding you for observation. Once you've healed, the doctor will come for you. Who... Who are you? Remain calm. Cooperate, and you might survive. And that's basically where we end things. <laughs> but what is the plan here? Did they bring one of the only uh, uh, is is a member of Clone Force ninety nine imperative to the science team's plans? Does uh, having him with Nalase mean something? Uh, is there genetic material research that they need moving forward? I, there are so many questions now. And again, you thought you had this, this amazing moment where. Where, where Crosshair is gonna gonna realize the error of his ways and, and reunite with Clone Force ninety nine and we have them back together again, but it's not not so fast, not so fast. They they get this. They I think Crosshair knows that the Empire is bad. I think that is now crystallized in his head that the clones are um, his loyalty's been in the wrong place, and it needs to be with his brothers. But something else is afoot now, and I, the question is, does Crosshair support whatever's gonna happen next for him, or is he gonna work against it? And I think we are putting ourselves in a really interesting place to, to as we as we sort of rocket towards the conclusion of season two of the Bad Batch, uh, because now we have our our uh, central characters in vastly different spots than we had them before, particularly with, with Crosshair, in a spot more uh, related to our main story, right? Like what's going on with Nalase, the hunt for Omega. You know, does does Crosshair get dispatched to hunt down Omega again? You know, these are the things we're going to have to find out moving forward. And and does he go about it in a, in a different way uh, than he did before? Uh, we have to. Find, we don't know what his mindset is going to be, but he made a big choice by commi- by by um, uh, you know murdering again, rightfully so in my opinion, but but murdering uh, Lieutenant Nolan. And and it'll be very very interesting to see what happens with Crosshair moving forward as all these new elements come into play for this 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 
finale of, of season two of the Bad Batch that we are rocketing towards uh, faster than expected. I think I think season two is supposed to be 16 episodes, which means we have four left. Uh, so, yeah, we got a lot. There's going to be a lot of ground to cover, and, and getting into, into these characters' headspaces is going to be very, very interesting over the next few weeks. Uh, and this is this is nine buckets as well. I love this episode. It was phenomenal. It had uh, uh, tension and drama and all the things, uh, and and uh, you know a fairly adult ending to to a, what's by and large a kid show. But I mean, again, Lieutenant Nolan straight up shot in the chest and killed by by Crosshair. And again, I I find it completely justifiable. But it's intense. It is crazy intense. All right, so we have gone really, really long talking about these two shows, but it could not be helped, and I hope uh, you've enjoyed the ride with us here. Uh, I want to thank you all for taking the time to listen to the Mandivision Podcast. My name is Tom, Nargai Tom, uh, and thank you again. Please follow us on social media. We're at Mando underscore Vision on Twitter and Instagram. Email the show MandivisionTom at gmail.com. I truly appreciate everyone takes the time. Hit us up on the socials. We love it, love it, love it. Make sure you're liking, subscribing, following, and sharing this podcast with all the Mandalorians in your covert. And you want to support the show another way? If you are inclined, five star reviews on whatever platform you're on, if they do reviews, are so, so helpful. We truly appreciate anyone who takes the time to do those. They help the small shows like us stand out uh, and, and not get lost in the shuffle. This is an independent podcast. Uh, we love Star Wars. You love Star Wars. And we appreciate all the support uh, that you, you give us by sharing the show and, and doing all that stuff. We, we, Really, really, really means the world to me. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We will be back next week. We should be on time next week with a day of release on Wednesday after we've watched The Bad Batch and The Mandalorian. Uh, but in the meantime, be great Star Wars fans. Support each other. Encourage new uh, new Star Wars fans, new thoughts on Star Wars. When someone has an opinion that's different from yours, hear them out. Have a discussion. Don't shout them down. E- embrace the buffet that is Star Wars. All right? But be great Star Wars fans. All right, Bucketheads, let's get out of here. I thank you, Buckethead Nation. You are the best. We'll be back next week. Remember, this podcast, it only ends one way, my friends. This is the way. This is the way. This is the way. This is the way. I suppose you'll be heading out. I'm not. You should. It's against the creed. I gave you my word. I'm with you until we both fall. You really buy into that bent of thought of? I do. Good.